opens your word and speaks around this area. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Sean. Um, I, I have a problem. I really do have a problem. Um, only one. <laughs> Bad hair day. No, anyway. <laughs> Sorry. I have a problem. Um, in that when I dive into the Bible, I find it's a bit like a treasury. And I start to re- read one truth, and then I'm led to another, and then I'm led to another, and then I'm led to another, and another. And I want to say them all. And we've got 25 minutes. So I've got 380 points to rattle through. Is that okay? It's not 380. But the Bible is like that. It draws us in. And what I want to do, we don't normally spend quite a bit of time reading scripture, but I want to do that this morning. So I'm going to read from Daniel. I'd like you to look at the screens because I clipped pieces together. But I think here in Daniel, we have insight into what the words of wisdom and knowledge really do mean in a full, integrated, rich sense. So let's go. Fantastic. It was the third year, and for anybody who's, not, who's new to church in the Old Testament, there was a superpower called Babylon. And then there was the children of Israel, and they were tiny. They were like a little bird in a cage. And the superpower went, defeated them in battle, and started to take off the people back to Babylon as slaves. This is the story. It was the third year of King Jehoiakim, and he was of the children of Israel, in Judah, when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon declared war and besieged the city. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar. And then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, told Ashpenaz, head of the palace staff, go get some Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men who were healthy, handsome, intelligent, well-educated, good prospects for leadership positions in the government, perfect specimens, Welshmen. (laughs) Sorry, that isn't in there. And listen, and then indoctrinate them in the Babylonian language and the law of magic and fortune-telling. That's how you get taken captive. I really want to get into this, but we have mo- that's how you get taken captive. You lose your roots. You lose your roots, and you get taken captive. But they, were, they weren't up for it, by the way. So four young men from Judah were chosen, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and God gave these four young men knowledge and skill, listen now, in both books and life. In addition, Daniel was gifted in understanding all sorts of visions and dreams. And they took their place in the king's service. And whenever the king consulted them on anything, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the kingdom put together. Then, in the second year of his reign, King Nebuchadnezzar started having dreams that disturbed him deeply. He couldn't sleep. So he called in the Babylonian magicians, enchanters, and that's a bit like a necromancer, they consulted the dead, sorcerers and fortune tellers to interpret his dreams for him. When they came and lined up before the king, he said to them, I had a dream that I can't get out of my mind, and now I can't sleep until I know what it means. And then the fortune teller said this, long live the king. Tell us the dream and we will interpret it. Sort of thing I'd say. Then the king answered the fortune tellers, this is my degree. If you can't tell me both the dream itself and its interpretation, I'll tickle you with a feather. (laughs) He didn't say that, did he? 
I will rip you to pieces, limb from limb, and have your homes torn down. What a generous man. But if you tell me both the dream and its interpretation, I will lavish you with gifts and honors. So go to it. Tell me the dream and its interpretation. So they answered, well, if it please your majesty, tell us the dream and we'll give the interpretation. But the king said, I know what you're up to. You're just playing for time. You know you're up a tree. You know that if you can't tell me my dream, you are doomed. I see right through you. And the problem is today, we can't see right through them. Our culture can't see right through them. We swallow stuff. You're going to cook up some fancy stories, confuse the issue until I change my mind. Not a chance. Because this was a powerful dream. First, you tell me the dream, and then I know that you're on the up and up with the interpretation and not just blowing smoke in my eyes. And the fortune teller said this. Nobody anywhere can do what you ask. And no king, great or small, has ever demanded anything like this from any magician, enchanter, or fortune teller. What you're asking is impossible, unless some god or goddess should reveal it, and they don't hang around with people like us. Should I stop now? That set the king off. He lost his temper and and ordered the whole company of Babylonian wise men killed. Now, when the death warrant was issued, Daniel and his companions were included. They were also marked for execution. So Daniel went to the king and asked for a little time so that he could interpret the dream. Then went home, it's important, and told his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what was going on. And he asked them to pray to the God of heaven for mercy in solving this mystery so that the four of them wouldn't be killed along with the whole company of Babylonian wise men. That night, the answer to the mystery was given to Daniel in a vision. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven, saying, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. He knows all. He does all. He changes the seasons and guides history. He raises up kings and also brings them down. He provides both intelligence and discernment. He opens up the depths. He tells secrets. He sees in the dark and light spills out of him. God of all my ancestors, all thanks, all praise. You have made me wise and strong. And now you have shown us what we asked for. You have solved the king's mystery. So Daniel went back to Arioch, who had been put in charge of the execution, and said, Call it off. Take me to the king, and I'll interpret his dream. And when Daniel was taken before the king, the king asked, Are you sure you can do this? Tell me the dream I had and interpret it for me. And Daniel answered, No mere human can solve the king's mystery. I don't care who it is. No wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no diviner. But there is a God in heaven who solves mysteries, and he has solved this one. He is letting King Nebuchadnezzar in on what is going to happen in the days ahead. This is the dream you had when you were lying on your bed, the vision that filled your mind. And Daniel told him and explained. So, in life, we all 
our culture, everybody is looking for direction. Where do you turn for it? Some, most of us, turn to human reason and power. Can somebody tell me who this statue is? His name is Diogenes. And he was a Greek. And he said, trust in yourself. You have the answer. If life is chaotic, if life is dangerous, you can do it. Use your strength. Use your power. And if you look at here, what he looks like, he's a strong fella. He's broad-shouldered. He's holding up the lamp of his own reason. And he's looking to the future. And that's what people believed. We can take hold of the future and control it. And what do you think is below his right hand? Let's have a look. It's a little dog. Now what that symbolizes is nature. And normally nature is red in tooth and claw. You go out and see it and it destroys you. But the idea is we can tame everything. We can tame the world. We can domesticate. And we can rule. This theory became dominant in the 16th and 17th century. It was called the Enlightenment. Does anybody know about it? And it simply said this, forget God, he's a loser. He doesn't know anything. In fact, he's got, he holds you back. If you think of civilization, God's the problem. So get rid of God. You work it out for yourselves. Use your nose. Use your strength. And it was 200 years later that we entered the most violent century that the world had ever known. Because as God got pushed away, so our worst instincts came out. And soon people realized, I don't think we are necessarily the answer. I don't think we have it all. So they turned elsewhere. So where's this? Some people turned away from humans, their own strength and power, and to priestesses and gods. This was the temple of Delphi in Apollo. And at the time of the New Testament church, this was one of the places you would go to if you wanted to have insight into truth. And in that temple, there was a priestess called the Pythia. There she is. Now, that smoke is not coming out of her bottom. I just thought I'd share that with you. What would happen is she'd sit on a tripod, and out through the ground, it was volcanic, would come noxious fumes. And she would go into some kind of trance, and she would either babble, or tell you the future, and everyone flocked to hear the Pythia. And now her place is a ruin. Do we look for the answer in humans? Do we look for the answer in babbling priestesses? Or do we look for the answer elsewhere? The next slide. Can anybody tell me what these are? Top left. Some people used to look at birds. It's called augury to tell the future. Next, some people turned to bones. Others used to turn to the human skull. Richard, feel your head. Oh, interesting. Oh, you're going to be a king. Oh, no, you're not. <laughs> the other side says something different. Yeah. They'd look at the head. Next, we know this, tea leaves. Does anybody know what that is? One on the bottom right. It's the bronze liver of Piacenza. And what would happen is some people thought, well, we really don't know what's going on. Let's get hold of somebody's liver and have a look at it. And then they did a little design to say, look, if it looks a bit like this, it's going to mean this. 
And I'm glad Stephen Woodrow's here today because you can imagine having a look at his liver, the life he's lived. <sighs> it would prophesy the apocalypse. <laughs> what the spaghetti junction? <laughs> and I did a little bit of research. Next, we're just going to pl- plow through some slides now. You will not believe why people t- how many places people turn to for insight and knowledge. I want you to think why. This slide, the one I love, they used to look at roosters pecking grains, the movement of the stars, the flight of birds. Uh, they would play cards. They would look at patterns in melting wax. They would look at the shape of your hands. There was lucky and unlucky days. There were people who could have spiritual visions of insight. There was crystal balls. There was looking at the entrails of animals. This is one of my favorites. It's called gastromancy, stomach-based ventriloquism. <laughs> they used to use it oh interesting oh interesting it's going to be sunny no thunder harispacy we've seen that the livers of sacrificed animals necromancy by the dead of the spirits clouds numbers dreams gems sticks one i used to love you'd have some cards you get some parrots and they'd come and pick cards for you oh look you're gonna die yeah oh wonderful Thank you, Parrot. Oh, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. But my favorite, let's keep going, go right to the end now. My favorite is Uriamancy. Does anybody know what that is? Let's have a little look. To tell the future by gazing upon the foamy froth that arises when urine is spurted onto water. So I was thinking there's nothing like a demonstration. <laughs> so uh, are we not sexist here? Women can come up. <laughs> And we la- let's tell the fortune. <laughs> now, guys, we think this is madness. We think it's madness, but it's massive, massive business. This next slide, there's a lady here. Super, the book of spells, you can, you know, you know, if you want to fall in love, if you want to do anything, you just cast a spell. Or this super tarot, forget normal tarot. Boring, super tarot. She alone has sold over five million books. I looked online, go back one, I looked online, and you find that online psychics are now making billions, billions of dollars. So what we need to realize is our people are desperate, desperate for truth. And if you look over the history of the world, they are desperate for truth. And because the gods they go to do not answer them, they do not speak to them, they are desperate to try to do something to get them to speak to them, even if it's to wee in a bucket and see what the froth looks like. People want insight. They even even look at livers. And it's getting a bit modern. So the next one, I love this. Oh, I was just going to say, psychics, it's not just for people like us who went to a comprehensive school. They were quite simple. But back when this lady used to direct presidents, I think it was Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan, they would go and find out any major decisions of any movements, they'd bring in this lady to do it for them. Next. Oh, I love this. This is, this is a bit of a modern twist now. Does anybody know what that is? Noel Edmonds. And do you, do you want to, do you, I'll do an American accent if I can. Would you like a new top job? Make new friends, maybe even meet that special someone. Then bust out your iPhone and let Noel Edmonds help with a little assistance from the cosmos. Guys, this is massive business now, and you have to be aware of it, because this is where people are turning. And I can tell you what you do. You write down what you want, 
I'd like whiter teeth, longer legs, whatever you want, and you tell the cosmos. And it will, millions of pounds. And there's other things now, and I met a lady on the school run, she's into the next one. Next slide, please. 26 experts here, they pool together their intellectual reserves to give you, twen- to give you insights that is going to change your lives, which is... It's the secrets of the subconscious mind, which nobody knows about. And the whole idea is this. Next slide. Living within you is something far greater than the most powerful supercomputer. It's your subconscious mind. Have a guess where it's come from. Ah, here we go. It stores every event, every occurrence, every emotion, and every circumstance from when. Next slide, please, Sean. Before we were born and all previous lifetimes... So your subconscious was around when the pyramids were built. Your subconscious was around when the elephants crossed the Alps. So by meditation and all that kind of stuff, you can tap into your subconscious mind. You can make the perfect souffle. It's in you, Josie. It's in there. You've got to tap in. So I was coming back from the school run today, and a person looked happy, and I said, why are you happy? She said, I've tapped into the power of my subconscious mind. How would you deal with that? I know I'll tell you later what I did, and it didn't go well. (laughs) It doesn't always work, my evangelism. Next slide, Sean. Next slide. Let's keep going, because these shysters. This fella. Does anybody know who this is? Steve Davis. Now, I've looked at all these methods. I spent weeks, you can ask my wife. I'm an expert now in any type of useless thing you want to do to kind of get some insight and information. I know. Um, but I realized it's all in some way about power and control. That's what it's about. You want to control your emotions. You want to get the person you want to marry you. You want to control the weather. It's about power and control. There's nothing relational about it. And it can lead to some dark places. Now, Steve Davis, his father, idolized snooker and wanted him to become a champion. And he made him practice relentlessly. He took him everywhere. And then all of a sudden, his son got to the final of the World Championship against Doug Mountjoy. It was a big deal. Could you play the video, please, Sean? And we had to learn the game together. And then we went on the journey. Not only the journey around the country, with my father waking up at stupid times to go to work, 6 a.m. in the morning, driving a staff bus all the way across London and then coming back at 6 o'clock at night time and then driving me off to a, a snooker match. He spent so much time devoted to my career. Um, but it was his passion, so it wasn't like it was hard for him. It was just what we did. And every day was a journey. We had to pinch ourselves in the end. It was just stupid. You know, turn professional, playing my heroes, playing his heroes, and then realising that his boy was arguably better. So his boy became, in a very short space of time, champion of the world. I mean, it must have been astonishing. It was, but I don't know how you thought about it, you know? I remember, I think, last frame in this dressing room, one of these dressing rooms. (laughs) (laughs) So he told me... um, hmm. I'm not sad, it's just... um, So he said, he never watched the last frame... And, <laughs> and he sold his soul to the devil, so I'd win the last frame. <laughs> and that's it. The world snooker champion. 
could possibly be. And we had to learn the game. They have consequences and they can lead to some dark places. So where do we go for knowledge and wisdom? Do we go to the cards? Do we go to melting wax? Or do we go to the devil himself and say, look, help control the future for me? The Bible tells us this. We find true knowledge and we find true wisdom in the living word. The Father, the Son and the Spirit. We also find it next year, and keep going, in God's word written down for us. We find it in the Bible. The next place we find it is in the family of Christ, particularly from those who take wisdom as their friend. And the next place we find it is in words of knowledge, those things that come out to us in the moment. So let's go through these, the living word. My friends, if you want any knowledge, any insight into the truth of life, there is one simple thing that you have to do. You have to be radically and fully opened up to God. That is it. That is rule number one. You don't turn to the stars. You don't turn to the heavens. You open yourself fully up to God. Think back to Daniel. Nobody can help because the gods, they're not interested in people like us. They don't live with us. And this is the radically different thing about the gospel message. God is open to us. God wants to bring us into relationship, and it's on almost every single page of the Bible. In Genesis, I want you to love and care for all we've made. When Cain had fallen, God came up and said, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. Don't let it master you. We find him speaking to Abraham, go, leave, and become a blessing to the nations. We find him speaking to Moses out of the burning bush. God is open to us. And if we want to know anything of substance and worth, we have to be radically open to him. Nowhere else. We read that his divine power has given us everything we need through our knowledge of him. We, uh, Paul wants us to have the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. How do we get that? We look at Christ, who in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we have a Holy Spirit who will come and lead us into truth. My friends, we have to be radically open to God, moment by moment by moment, day by day. The next thing is God's word written down for us. We read in Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and valuable for teaching the truth, convicting of sin, correcting faults, training in right living, so that anyone who belongs to God might be fully equipped for every good work. The tradition I came from highly prized the Bible. And they used to say that one of the sure signs that God is with us is that we can just open his book and find him in his word. They call us to be saturated by it, to be moved by it, to daily be looking. Not like some kind of cosmic ordering service. We don't think, ah, I want something, I'll go to the Bible, see how I can get it. Abracadabra, Shalom, where is it? It's not like that. They said you go to the Bible, why? First, to meet the living word. You go there to meet God. 
You go there to hear from him. It's called, the Bible is called what? It's the light to our path and the lamp to our feet. So think of Diogenes, his wisdom, his power was the way he got through life. And the Bible says no. It's through God's living word. And we also have, sometimes we can find it a bit tricky, can't we, the Bible? Hands up who finds it totally easy. Hands up who finds it a little bit tricky at times, how to know to navigate. Pathetic. No, <laughs> slipped out. <laughs> Just so I'd break the ice a bit. So what does God do? He promises two things. We have the Spirit to guide. But more than that, we are supposed to come together around this as a community. Do you understand? It's not one person has all the knowledge. It's not one person that engages with God. It's not one person that reads the Scriptures. It's supposed to be all of us. And I don't know if you've seen the ancient Jewish community discussing the Bible. It is manic. They're just conversation. What do you think of this, Tom? You shout back, I shout back, we keep going. It's conversational. But now, because one person is supposed to have all the knowledge, you have to sit like little sardines and listen to me. It's supposed to be interactive to a degree, and that's where home groups and like groups are so important. So what we do in our home group is this. We sit around the word, and we have one person who's a reader, and they read it to us. And we listen, and we try and engage with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then we read it again. And again, and then what we do is we share one another as a community. How has God been speaking to you in the word? And it's gold. Because God moves in everyone. And all of a sudden, this family, this community, is bringing forth treasure after treasure from the word of God to nurture and feed us. And that's how we gain knowledge. And that's how we gain wisdom and insight. And there's one other more important thing for me. Why are we to read the Bible over and over and over again? It's so that we can become part of the story. That's the whole idea. We are almost to become the penultimate chapter. One of my favorite theologians, Tom Wright, says this. The history of the church is not yet finished. We are the penultimate chapter. And what we need to do is be so shaped by the insight and wisdom of God's word that we now know how to live out the stage before Christ returns, where we start to make all things new, where we look out for the rights of the poor and the oppressed, where we speak into the injustice of the world, where we become a voice for the voiceless, hope for the hopeless. That's our job. And how do we do that? By becoming part of the story. And how do we become part of the story? We learn what it is till it shapes us right in the deepest parts of our being so we instinctively become Jesus' followers. We are shaped by the knowledge and insight of the word. Next, the family and the wise. I've already talked about the fact that we are supposed to be learners and readers together. Well, the next thing that God's wisdom comes out to us is through one to another. I'll read it. Paul in Romans 15. When I think of you, my dear Light Church family, I myself am thoroughly convinced that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and well able to give one another instruction.
One of the difficult things for us to get our heads around, I think, these days is the difference in understanding between knowledge in the Old Testament and what we call knowledge now. So normally, knowledge now, when I say knowledge, what do people think of? Information, yeah? So we think people are really clever if they can remember lots of facts like how many cylinders in the engine of a 1957 Qualcast mower. Wow, he's clever. There's one. And you are very clever. (laughs) And like me, you most probably had a Qualcast mower. It's very good. You still got it. We think that's clever. Knowledge is nothing like the next slide. But let's show and bless him, his finger's gone. There's so many slides. It's nothing uh, back. It's nothing like mastermind. Nothing like that at all. So in the Old Testament, knowledge was something that was completely and utterly experienced. So you're not knowledgeable in knitting if you've read about it. You know nothing about it. You have information about it, but you have to knit. So what Paul was saying, and you know, I've got an analogy. We had a guy who came and worked for us once. He was a consultant. And he, on paper, was unbelievably brilliant. He knew everything about everything. All right, seven-step plan for that one, eight-step. Uh, but he'd never actually done anything. So he was a complete and utter disaster. He had no knowledge. He just had information. So my friends, if we want to become wise, if you want to know what it means to love one another, what do you do? You start to love one another. You'll have no knowledge about love if you don't start to love. If you want to know what it means to become a person whose life is absorbed with generosity, what do you need to do? You need to start to be generous. If you want to know what it is for us, the big challenge of our community of our time, how do we become a community? We have to start having a go at becoming a community. And that's how we become knowledgeable. And through us trying to do what God says, we start to build up a reserve of knowledge so that we can actually start to speak into each other's lives with insight and experience because we are knowledgeable people. We know God. We know his word. We have a go at living it. He meets us in those circumstances, and then we become wise, and then we are able to instruct one another because we are filled with goodness. Next. I told you there's 280 points. You didn't believe me. And next, God comes out to us in the moment. To one through the Spirit is given the word of wisdom. To another, a word of knowledge in accordance with the same Spirit. Because life is a roller coaster, said the philosopher Ronan Keating. (laughs) Guys, life is a roller coaster and we don't have all the answers up our sleeve. At every single time, do we? So sometimes God comes to us and he gives us that in the most powerful and unbelievable and surprising way. But I don't think that comes if you're not radically open to him. If you're not trying to live the life. If you're not putting yourself in a place of being used. If you're not taking your call seriously. You want those words, we need to be opened up and in the moment. Now, I came from a very conservative tradition. Very conservative. 90% of you would be heretics, without a shadow of a doubt, and worthy of burning. The other 5% wouldn't even be worthy of burning. Really conservative. But the one thing we did understand was words of knowledge because one of our heroes was this fella. 
It's not something you see at the Yorkshire show. Does anybody know who it is? Charles Haddon Spurgeon. What a fella. When he was 10, he had a prophecy over him that said, you are going to preach in this particular church and to thousands of people. And he went on to become one of the largest figures in Western culture. He started with the Church of 200, and very quickly they had to rebuild one of 6,000 to get everybody in, which was a mistake because there was at least 12,000 trying to get in the building. The Prime Minister would try and come. Parliament would try and come. He was paid for a small section of his works, over £20 million in today's money, by newspapers. Tell us more. Speak to us. He spent all his money. He built orphanages. He built colleges. He was an incredible fella. But very occasionally, when he was speaking, he would have words of knowledge. And I remember one story. It's all written down. You can read the biography. But all of a sudden, he's preaching this. I think he preached once in the Crystal Palace to 23,000 people. And at the end of his life, they'd worked out he had preached to more than 10 million people. He preached 10 times a week. The guy was honestly incredible. But all of a sudden, he'd have such strong impulses. Once he pointed and said, there's a young man there. Up in the gallery, you, those gloves you've hidden in your pocket, you stole them from your employer this morning. And it was true. Another fella, you there, you've got some gin concealed on your person. The Lord wants to do business with you this morning. And it was true. Another person, you, you're a shoemaker, aren't you? You are open last Sunday and this Sunday. I believe you took nine pence, four pence profit, I just want to let you know I think you're selling your soul to the devil for money. And it was true. These things came out like a bolt, out of the blue, into the moment, and started to change people's lives. He couldn't get it off a Facebook profile. It wasn't vague and wispy. I'm not knocking that in the slightest. From my tradition, when God comes, he can put his finger on and give you information and wisdom that can surely change a life and this is what Spurgeon said I will close in two minutes our personal pathway has been so frequently directed listen contrary to our own design and beyond our own conception by singularly powerful impulses and irresistibly suggestive providences I hope we're getting this drift that it would be wanton wickedness for us to deride the doctrine that God grants to his servants a special and perceptible manifestation of his will for their guidance over and above the strengthening energies of his Holy Spirit and the sacred teaching of the inspired word. He needed to say that because our tradition didn't believe that the Spirit did these things in this day and age. So when he did them, he had to justify himself. But God comes and he speaks in the moment. So to close, words of knowledge come out in all sorts of different ways to us. When a life comes into our congregation, a broken life, who do we want them to meet? We want them to meet Jesus Christ. That's the first port of call. We need their lives to be opened up to Jesus, and so do we. What's the second thing we want? We want them to come under the liberating word of the gospel of peace things that can change the very direction of their lives. Then what do we want? We want them to come alongside people who know what it is 
to walk with Jesus, serve Jesus, and to live a life of love. Because then they can speak wisdom into their lives. And sometimes we want them, God, to give us a word that can somehow reach right into the very depths of something that's holding them back and that is hidden so we can unlock it and release it and point them to Jesus Christ. So my friends, if you want to be filled with all knowledge and all wisdom, we need all of them. Not play one off against the other. Not think one is more important than the other, but to make sure we nurture them all. And the foundation of that is a radical and constant, continual openness to God himself. Let me pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you are truth. We thank you that you want to speak. We thank you that you have sent your son into this world so we could touch him and see him and see truth himself. So help us, I pray to be radically open to you, radically open to your presence, radically open to the way you speak to us through your word, radically open to your promptings for us to be salt and light in a city on a hill. Let us grow in true knowledge of what it means to be that new chapter of the Church of Christ where we work with you to make all things new. And I pray, Father, that you too will come as we are open and give us insight into the moments where we need you to come and break through. So be with us, Lord, I pray. I ask it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.